Welcome to another episode of our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Visit our website for complete collections of your favorite old-time radio series. Remember to follow us so you won't miss new releases from SolvedMystery.com. hour, we make our bow to the great lady of the American stage, Ethel Barrymore, brought to life in the words of her relatives and friends, through the eyes of her admirers and well-wishers. Meet Ethel Barrymore. I'm Vincent Sheehan, and most of my own existence has been pretty far from the theater. I do have one qualification for talking about Ethel Barrymore, and that is that I once wrote a play for her. It didn't do her, or me, much good. We lasted two weeks in Boston and three in New York. However, that's quite a while when you're working all together and all the time, as you do in the theater. Those weeks, plus the weeks of rehearsal... I got to know Miss Barrymore's quality at its most professional, its most unsinkable, undefeatable. Ethel Barrymore's life composes, on the whole, into a tremendous American success story. But it could not be that in full and to the utmost unless it had also included such adventures as the one we had with my play, intrepidly encountered and surmounted. Ethel always seemed to be saying... We do our best, and the public decides, but we'll never weaken. In a very long and shining career as an actress in the United States and England, Miss Barrymore has had, of course, about 20 successes to every one failure. But I like to think that our failure, the one I wrote for her, was the last she ever had. From that moment, almost 15 years ago, she has encountered nothing but triumph, both in the theater her native element, and the films to which she came after the heat of the day was over. You can call it a sunset, but it is one of the most beautiful and heartwarming sunsets that ever have been seen. She's written a book about it under the plain, accurate title of Memories, which will be published early in April. We've delved into our own memories here at NBC... And you'll be hearing those in a moment. The generation of men and women who are stars now in Hollywood have the same feeling that we all have for this great lady, old in years now but ever young, who came to them in Hollywood after she had already achieved one of the most remarkable of all stage careers. When they were casting the corn as green, I tried out for one of the parts. Gregory Peck. Well, I didn't make it, but a friend of mine did. And one night after the play had been running for months, I walked to the theater with him. When we got there, he was told that there probably wouldn't be any performance. Miss Barrymore had the flu. You did, too. Your eyes were feverish, and when you held out your hand to me, it was like fire. However, there was an audience out front. You got into your makeup. Came your entrance cue. I saw you brush that fever into the wings... 
Drop 30 years from your age and give that audience scripture measure for the price of their tickets. And as I watched you, I said, now that's a profession I'm proud to be part of. Would it be disloyal to my profession for me to hint that... Catherine Hepburn. Great stars are apt to show a little more interest in themselves than in anything else. Not Miss Barrymore. It's the world she's interested in, or rather, a lot of different worlds. Sports, history, music, politics, books. It seems impossible that a human being with the austere allowance of only 24 hours every day can keep in such close touch with them. She has more friends than anyone I know, but she is not a dear, gentle soul. Barrymore's don't come like that. She has a trenchant wit. She can rebuke stupidity or intolerance with silence. Better than Joe Lewis could do it with his fists. She makes appallingly accurate observations. She doesn't know the meaning of fear or the meaning of caution. I had the good fortune to work with Miss Barrymore and number the lonely heart. Cary Grant. Screen acting requires a different technique from stage acting, and it's a difficult switch to make so suddenly. Miss Barrymore took on the job with the modesty and enthusiasm of a young girl. She sailed into eight weeks of strange work with new people, with new technical demands. She came out with an Academy Award and a mandate from this town never to leave. Miss Barrymore is an American, of course, as we are all proud to say, born in Philadelphia, but of an illustrious theater family which came originally from England and Ireland. I know Miss Barrymore will not object if I elect to speak in honor of another actress altogether. The late Alexander Woolcott. An actress I never had the good fortune to see, but my mother thought her the greatest of them all. And again and again, she used to tell me about her when I was a little boy. Her name was Louisa Lane Drew, Mrs. John Drew. And if the three Barrymores have made names for themselves in the American theater, it is in no small measure because they have her blood in their veins. She was their grandmother. In the bouncing days of my servitude as a dramatic editor... I used to be flooded every spring by letters from boys and girls about to graduate from sundry American colleges and all asking how to go on the stage. Did I think they should begin in some stock company from which, as Mrs. Fisk used to say, they would probably emerge with the firm, firm touch on the wrong note? Or did I recommend a dramatic school, and if so, which? I've forgotten my answers, but I always wanted to say, my dears, you're too late. The right way to go on the stage is to be born there. It's unimportant what dramatic school you pick, so long as you are careful to pick an actress for your grandmother. Lionel John and Ethel Barrymore have this in common, that their grandmother was a great-grandmother. Uh, may I say something about the family heritage? This is Lionel Barrymore. Now, it wasn't just grandmother who had an interest in the theater. I'd like to say a few of the great things that should be said about her. But to tell you the truth, I'm still afraid of her. And the only person who wasn't afraid of her was Jack. Our father was a leading man. And what a leading man. And what a wit. And our beautiful mother was a lovely actress and a marvelous comedian way ahead of her time. Our uncle, John Drew, was an actor of great distinction. 
Now, Ethel wanted to be a pianist. But when she was 13 years old, our mother died. The next year, she went into a play Uncle John Drew was doing, the bauble shop, playing an elderly character part. The audience got their first real glimpse of her in Rosemary. And, if a brother may say so, she was something to glimpse at. At about this time, she took on the responsibilities of our part of the family. She looked after our kid brother, John, and later on, when I wanted to be an artist, she offered me the money to go to Paris. And you know what I did? I took the money and went to Paris. And I raised Cain if the monthly check came in two days late. Both of us have a great deal to be thankful to her for. It, uh, is always a little bit difficult to follow Lionel in a speech. John Barrymore. It's a little like, uh, little Eva following Jack Dempsey. But, uh, Ethel gave me my first break in the theater. She put me on the stage for the first time professionally in a play called Captain Jinx, her first starting vehicle where I took the part played by Mr. Frank Byrne, who left the company for a couple of weeks on account of an illness in his family. I next played with her in a drama called Sunday, in which she spoke the now famous line, That's all there is. There isn't any more. She's a very, very splendid person. And all through both our lives has been just like a rock of Gibraltar. And it's a wonderful thing, having in one's immediate family someone of such gaiety, charm, and splendor that one has only to think of her, to be invested with the God-given quality of humility. three children of her one and only marriage to Mr. Russell Colt were made aware of the family heritage pretty early. John Barrymore Colt is her youngest son. Ethel Barrymore Colt, Miljeta, is her only daughter. I, I remember once go, going to see the silent version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which my Uncle Jack did, and I must say... Mother took us, Very remember? well. And we saw it down in Southampton, where we were spending the summer... And Uncle Jack was sitting right beside me, and I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, I couldn't be convinced that he wasn't coming off that screen and kill me. And I was under the seat at the end of the picture <laughs> with Uncle Jack looking for me, saying, It's all right, Jackie, it's all right. I said, Oh, no, it isn't. I'm scared to death, and I wouldn't speak to him for a week. <laughs> well, we, we sat up all night. I remember that so well. We went home, and he was downstairs. He was courting one of his many wives at the time, and he kept being interrupted because we were having screaming hysterics upstairs, and Mother would make him go upstairs and sit on our bed and tell us how he put on the makeup and the beard and, you know, and how he made all this horrible transformation. There was a very successful play on Broadway some years ago, which was supposed to be about the Barrymores. It was called The Royal Family, and they made it into a film afterwards. Many who saw it must have wondered 
Whether life in Miss Barrymore's household was or is anything like that shown in the royal family. Oh, no, it really isn't. It makes everybody in the family sound perfectly mad, uh, screaming, yelling, talking sharp all the time, rushing up and down stairs. I won't say that there was never an eccentric in our entire family, but the uh, family, the home, uh, the the hearth, shall we say, was always most calm and normal and and rather cozy, though you may not believe it. And uh, there was very little shop ever talked at home. This was rather a taboo. It was rather an almost, I won't say indecent subject, but it wasn't something mentioned, you know. Mm-hmm. People uh, have an odd feeling that Mother or uh, her brothers would rush home from the theater and talk nothing but shop. And I always compare it with, um, say, a, a great lawyer. Would he come home from a day at the court and discuss this entire case with his children? Mm-hmm. Never. Would he, a great surgeon discuss his operation with his children? I should say not. Mm-hmm. And yet somebody, people have always had this feeling that there was never a word spoken in our house that wasn't on the subject of the theater. And for me, too, it was at first surprising to learn that there wasn't any shop talk in Miss Barrymore's house, especially before, during, or after dinner. I dined with her quite often during the preparation for our play out at that lovely old house of hers near uh, Mamaroneck. Sometimes we were alone, and sometimes we were with my wife or her children or some of them. But the talk was always about politics or books or games or people. And a good deal of it was about that wonderful London where Ethel, as a radiant young American beauty, made her first triumphs a long time ago. In the days when Mother first started acting, when she was a very young girl, actors legally, and I believe there are still statutes on the books, both in England and in some states here, were classed as rogues and vagabonds. You know, actors, rogues and vagabonds. This was just a thing. They were kind of gypsies. And uh, when Mother was a very young girl, and she went to London and took it by storm, not um, entirely with her acting, because she was just a young, beautiful creature then. I mean, she wasn't a star, wasn't playing important parts. But she went everywhere. She went places that no actress had ever been before. She was, uh, there was an awful lot of uh, stuff written at the time about her dukes and duchesses and things. But there's no doubt that she had some very glamorous friends. Mother took all of us uh, to England, thought we should see it. And uh, one day an invitation came from Mr. Churchill. Mm-hmm. And uh, she took us all there to lunch. And at that time, as, as Mr. Churchill was completely out of power. And as we were driving away from the house, I said to my mother, I was age 16 at the time, I said, Mother, why don't we hear more about Mr. Churchill these days? Mother looked at me with a smile and she said, It may take a few years, but have patience. You'll hear from him again. (laughs) Miss Barrymore's incomparable high comedy style comes out clearly in a scene we'll hear now from a play Sidney Howard wrote for her called The Ghost of Yankee Doodle. Here she's an aging beauty to whom an old flame of her youth returns, as she thinks, too late. She plays this with Dudley Diggs. I've got the booth talking to the background, sir. Fine old American house, more than adequate income from a nice little family business. 
call no man master. No, not partner even. Oh, why did I let you into the house this morning? To see what I'd be like after all these years. Well, I've seen. You haven't changed much. Three hours of you have put me three years nearer my grave. You come hurtling across the continent in a plane and drop down out of a blizzard, and for what? You've done nothing since you came into the house but jump from bright object to bright object like a baboon. That's my vitality I'm famous for. Uh, vitality is God's gift to lightweights. <laughs> I suppose no one ever called you a lightweight before. I was thinking of you a few years ago in Italy, in Milan. They were having a public dance competition, and we went to pass the evening watching it. And the prize was won by a dapper elderly Austrian nobleman. Winning dance prizes was his life's passion, he told us. His name was von Berstold. Do you remember that name? He was the Austrian prime minister who wrote the ultimatum to Serbia and started that other war back in 1914. Yes. It's when one sees leaders of millions like von Berstold and you, Jim, that one's heart grows heavy for trusting humanity. I wish you'd go on to Washington and leave me in peace. Uh, yeah. Sit down, Sarah. Hmm? Yeah. That's better. You know, it's just exactly as I knew it would be to see you again. Like uh, Napoleon coming back to Josephine. Oh, no, I wouldn't be good in the part. <laughs> you were in love with me once. Oh, don't I remember? Well, I thought you would, but I didn't expect you to say so. Oh, that belongs to the past. I'm involved with the present now. You don't fit in here, sir. All this isn't for you. You know, you waited 20 years for your chance to patronize me, and I won't be petty enough to spoil your fun. But you forget that I was put on the stage before I was six and got my picture of life from the plays we played then. And they were nice plays about nice people who lived in big houses in peace and security. Is that any excuse for living out here in the sticks? You call it the sticks? I call it America. That has the sound of civic-mindedness. Oh, you should know that I'm too lazy to be civic-minded, except about the symphony. I do work on that. I fall innocently in love with all the conductors and make them engage Rachmaninoff every season. (laughs) Yes, I remember your weakness for music. Oh, you never shared it. Oh, I don't know. And when I tell them (laughs) how wonderful (laughs) you are... You remember Julius Anderson? With the greatest affection and pleasure for her sake, though, not because you bought the ticket. Uh, What have you done with your great gifts, Sarah? I've lived the life I wanted to and liked it. And found out a great many things that you wouldn't know were important. How pleasant an evening can be alone with a long book and a great deal of coffee. What a mistake it is to carry a watch because no time matters except time to oneself. I've been singularly and completely contented here. You'll never regret what you gave up for this? If I read that melting eye correctly, I never regretted you. Why didn't you marry me, Sarah? Oh, Jim, how boring. You haven't thought of me for years. Now I've seen you again. I think that's pretty cheap of you. Well, now, we were in love. Why didn't you marry me? Well, if you must go digging into the past, you never asked me to marry you. Well, you can't be right about that. I am, though. The idea was to add my latchkey to quite a collection. I had my own waiting line at the box office then. I didn't see myself standing in yours after the play. (laughs) But I did ask you. I remember. The night I told you I was marrying Paul, I didn't count that. The gong had already gone. Mm-hmm. You never cared for your husband as you did for me. Oh, that isn't true. Well, you only married to get away from him. That's really annoying, Jim. You never married again after he died. What does that prove? Well, don't the happily married always try it again? Oh, all this wit and wisdom. I hate you to think, though, that I didn't have chances. Mm. Huh. You should have married me, Sarah. 
I could have given you all this and more. You couldn't have given me any of it. And if you've turned up here today for no better purpose than to sort over your old valentines, I'm awfully sorry, Jim, but I'm just not in the mood. No, I'm not here to sort old valentines. I'm here because once I'd got safely down out of this storm, I thought of the curious gift you used to have for putting me straight almost in any dilemma. You know, you're still the strongest and clearest person I've ever known. And what am I expected to say to that? That I'm afraid I've become just a mousy widow lady? I haven't. You go on to Washington. We've dilemmas of our own here. You and I share the same dilemma, sir. Oh, no, I doubt that somehow. As people of property, we're both concerned with self-preservation. Not in the same sense, though. I've been through that once today already and solved it, what's more. Sir... Come with me to Washington. Why should I even consider? Now, whatever opinion you may hold of me, and you are pretty clear about that just now, I'm just as clear about what I feel for you. Now, that's all the past, Jim. Can't we keep that out of the present? Well, there wouldn't be any present without it. We shouldn't be here in this room without it. No, we're not going to stay in here any longer. Marry, marry me, Sarah. Oh, that's bad manners, Jim. All those people in the next room. It's Christmas, Jim. Let's join the party. We've come together again on a, on a white Christmas and... I can't make love to you as a young man could. You're not doing badly. That white Christmas was very nice. <laughs> I've seen the life you've made for yourself, Sarah. All the strength and sense and privacy of it. And I see my own life as I've lived it without you. No center to it. Unsettled and frantic. Aren't you the least bit sorry for me? Not enough to prescribe myself as a sedative. <laughs> History might have been different if you'd married me, Sarah. Heaven help me, what is it I lack that I can't win you? I find it hard to believe in vintage romance. <laughs> but you were a very attractive young man, Jim. I told you you hadn't changed. You weren't being very complimentary when you said that. Well, I might so easily have been. Is it conceivable that I'm being tempted? Why not? I shall to be very sure, shouldn't I? You can be sure of me. I might be using you as a way out, though. That wouldn't do at all. A way out of what? No, it doesn't matter. You wonder for weather for flying today, Jim, after yesterday, almost miraculous. Why didn't you tell me about all this, Sarah? This what? I know about the factory, Sarah. I have ways of knowing things. You're cleaned out, aren't you? Well, if I'm cleaned out, it's what I've chosen to be. A little tacked on your part would have told you I might be sensitive on the subject. I own a newspaper in the city. As a newspaper man, I make it my business to pry into anything that's of interest to me. Don't you see that this is the end of the world for you, Sarah? That's just the trouble. It isn't. I'm healthy and I've still a long time to live. With me? Oh, why didn't you go last night? If I had, I should have missed what looks like a good opportunity this morning. Yes, Sarah, to reopen my suit for your heart and hand under circumstances which, to my practical mind... Look at him with his head up and his tail over the dashboard. <laughs> You don't like being taken advantage of. How did you think I would? Rise above it, Sarah. Say to yourself, I'm fond of this man who's dropped back into my life out of the sky and come to care for me a second time. And it's to the best interest of all concerned that I should marry him as soon as feasible. Then put on your hat and coat and we'll go and get the license. No. Sarah, I could go into court and take my oath on the president's 15th century Dutch Bible that you want to say yes. But how could I be sure what I feel for you and I'll be flying in the face of providence if I don't take you? Why didn't you drop down out of the sky a month ago? I could have seen you clearly and humanly there with my life before me as it would have been if all this, as you call it, hadn't happened. I'd have found myself here alone and my trips abroad going longer and longer and winding up in a world cruise in a white serge suit. I'd have seen that my function here was ended and jumped to the chance of a new function with you. But now, just as I have to give everything up, you offer me a suitcase full of millions and a way out of everything I let myself in for. 
How can I trust my feelings for you? If I say I'll take my chances... No, it's no good. Come back in a year. If you've got to care for me twice, you ought to be able to work yourself up into a third time. <laughs> and if I've made a success of my hat shopping or whatever I do decide to turn my hand to, I'll be less confused. But it's no good now with all this round my neck. So go on if you're going and leave me to lie on the bed I've made for myself. Alone. <laughs> oh, Sarah, my Sarah. You are mine, you know. And I'll be hanged if I let you go. Will you do something for me? What? Kiss me goodbye. Well, I don't see there'd be any harm in that. Goodbye, Sarah. Goodbye, Jim. You've noticed, and we all have for many years, how Miss Barrymore's contained and controlled laughter lies just underneath her voice, underneath the lines that she says. It's the same with tears. She doesn't laugh and she doesn't weep. That part's up to us. But she summons these emotions to sustain her voice the way an orchestra sustains a singer or other soloist. It's fairly mysterious what she does, and it isn't all technique by any means. One night in Boston, she asked me, as usual, if I had noticed anything during the performance just over. This was during our tryout. I mentioned a line in which the laugh was supposed to come at the end, and I said I did notice that they laughed in the middle. Miss Barrymore smiled and said, I noticed too, but don't worry, they'll never do it again. And believe me, they never did it again. She was able to make them laugh precisely at the end of the line and not in the middle. Maybe that was technique, but Miss Barrymore's performances contain so much else, so much more than technique, that we end up saying it's just plain magic. The secret is not something that can be learned in a season. Claudette Colbert. Or a hundred seasons. Because it is not a theatrical skill. It is a fact of personality. Gaiety is a requirement of the spirit, just as the spirit is necessary to make anything important out of comedy. They are not separate worlds. They are the same world, the world of St. Francis of Assisi, who found something profoundly amusing in the courtliness of birds, infinitely touching in the groping of kings. Ethel Barrymore discovered that early. Because I suspect Ethel Barrymore is that. The spiritual mind of great gaiety. That is what I learned from her. I think it is not so much a lesson in acting as a lesson to actors. The late and well-remembered producer, Mr. Arthur Hopkins, was her friend and worked with her for many years. In my association with Miss Barrymore, one incident stands out because it explains to me her eminence more than can be attributed to beauty, heritage, and talent. We have seen others with these blessings flare up and die away. So there must be some inner light surpassing all that is apparent. I caught a glimpse of that light one night quite unexpectedly. We were talking about a performance that had been marred by an actor obviously suffering from a cold. She said with simple conviction... No actor has a right to have a cold while he's on the stage. I saw that she had accepted this apparently unreasonable demand of, of her calling without question. 
It not only explained her ability to get through performances when desperately ill, but it revealed her sense of obligation to the character she was portraying. She felt she had no right to afflict the character with the personal ills of the artist. Miss Barrymore's high comedy style isn't her only vein by any means. She has a serious and even a stern method when she needs it, as we see in one of the big scenes of Emlyn Williams's memorable play, The Corn is Green. Ethel played that play all over the United States a few years ago. You remember she's a schoolteacher in a remote part of Wales, and she set her heart on making something good out of a talented boy, one of her pupils, who's in a scrape with a rather trivial local girl. The schoolteacher is determined to save this boy and put him on his way by means of a scholarship at Oxford. Just hear how she does it. Look at me, Morgan. We're together now. Our hearts are face to face, naked and unashamed, for there's no time to lose, my boy. The clock is ticking... And there's no time to lose. If ever anyone was at the crossroads, you are now. It's no good. I'm going to marry her. And I'm going to talk to you very simply. I want you to change suddenly from a boy into a man. I know this has been a great shock to you, but I want you to throw off this passionate obstinacy to do the right thing. Did you ever promise her marriage? No, never. Did you ever tell her that you were in love with her? No, never. Then your situation is the purest accident. It's regrettable, but it's happened before. It'll happen again. You're not the central figure of such a tragedy as you think you are. That does not alter the fact that I have a duty to them both. She has her own plans, and she doesn't want the child. And I'm willing to take care of the child if you all behave as I want you to. You know what will happen if you marry her, don't you? You'll go back to the mine. And in a year, she'll have left you both. You'll be drinking again, and this time you won't stop. You'll enjoy being the besotted, uncouth village genius who once showed such promise. But it won't be worth it, you know. There is a child living and breathing on this earth and living and breathing because of me. I don't care if there are 50 children because of you. You mentioned the word duty. Yes, you have a duty. But it's not to this little loose lady or her offspring either. You mean a duty to you? No, no. A year ago, I might have said a duty to me. But that night, you showed your teeth. You gave me a lot to think about. I gave you the worst possible answer. I turned sorry for myself and taunted you with ingratitude. I should have known that a debt of gratitude is the most humiliating debt of all when a little show of affection would have wiped it all out. I offer you that affection today. Why are you saying this to me now? Because as the moments are passing, and I'm going to get my way, I know that I shall never see you again. Never again? But why? If you're not to marry her, it'd be madness for you to come in contact with a child. So if I'm adopting the child, you mustn't come to see me. That's common sense. And 
You've been given the push over the wall that you asked for. But you will be staying here. How can I never come back after everything you have done for me? Do you remember for the last six months how I've gone for a walk over Moyle Harris every morning at eight like clockwork for my health? Yes. There's a bit of that road round the boulder. And there's an oak tree. And under it the valley suddenly drops sheer. Every morning as I was turning that corner, by some trick of the mind, I saw you working for this scholarship and winning it. And I experienced something that must, after all, be comparatively rare. A feeling of complete happiness. I shall experience it again. No, Morgan Evans, you have no duty to me. Your only duty is to the world. To the world? Now that you're going, there's no harm in my telling you. I've always been very definite about the things I've wanted. I've always had everything worked out to a T. Perhaps that's what's the matter with me. I don't know. But I've got you worked out. And it's up to you to prove whether I'm right or not. Go on. I rather made out to the squire that I wanted you to be a writer. The truth might have sounded ridiculous. But stranger things have happened. You have a great deal now, and Oxford will give you the rest. For what? Enough to become a great man of our country. If a light come in the mine, you said. Remember? Make that light come in the mine. And someday free these children, and you can be more, much more, a man for a future nation to be proud of. Perhaps I'm mad. I don't know. We'll see. It's up to you. Yes. I think that's all. But I... I do not know what to say. Then don't say it. I have been so much time in this room. And the lessons are over. I shall always remember. Will you? I'm glad you think you will. Goodbye. Ethel Barrymore has, by inheritance, a natural wealth of talent. Herman Shumlin, who produced the corn is green. But she has obviously never contented herself with this alone. I know that at no place in years of stardom has she ceased to perfect herself as an artist. The incandescence of her own person shines the more strongly by the rigorous demands she makes upon herself. There is one place, only a little place too, in the corn is green, which is an example to me of the great precision of Miss Barrymore's skill. There is a line in the play which follows a scene in which she has won, by the dexterous exploitation of her feminine charm, the aid of a country gentleman in her scheme to gain a university education for a poor young mining boy, an almost unattainable objective. And when this innocent squire has left the room, she lifts her hand and says of him, that man is so stupid, it sits on him like a halo. This line evokes from the audience such an instantaneous and overwhelming response as I have rarely seen in the theater. 
It provokes laughter which leads even to applause. Yet it is not the line itself which warrants this understanding and applause. It is the way Miss Barrymore acts it. In one brief fraction of a second, there is a gesture with the hand which carves in the air such a complete image of that squire that it is impossible for any observer not to immediately reproduce her affectionate description in his own mind. This is a simple example of her art, and that art has been at the service of countless plays. We will continue Meet Ethel Barrymore after a brief pause for station identification. Even the finest actresses may not be always and everywhere great human beings. We've all heard of a good many whose hearts only turned on with the footlights. Miss Barrymore's friends, colleagues, and family know that in her case, there's a humanity that informs and infuses all of her being. It was in Pittsburgh, in a hotel dining room. Helen Hayes. Quite a few years ago. And I still feel my heart jump with the thrill of that recollection. I was playing a small part with John Drew and the prodigal husband. Pittsburgh was the stand. Mr. Drew walked into the dining room. That was always something of a sensation. But the effect was double that night. For with him was his niece, Ethel Barrymore. I'm afraid from that moment on I let my dinner get cold. And it was hard for me not to stare. Perhaps you can imagine my excitement, though, when Mr. Drew came over to our table and asked me to come and meet his niece. I was sure I wouldn't be able to speak a word and that I'd appear awkward. Miss Barrymore was a great star, and nobody had ever heard of Helen Hayes. I was wrong, though. Miss Barrymore had heard of me. She knew the few things I had done, and she naturally assumed that the theater meant as much to me as it did to her. She talked to me simply, not patronizingly as from a great star to an unknown, but as one player to another on an equal footing. When I got back to my table, I realized that the meeting with my idol hadn't been an ordeal at all. And years later, I knew the reason. I knew that Ethel Barrymore was great, not because she thought of herself as a great personality, but because she thought of herself as part of the theater which she loved for what it is and for the people who are in it. I came to know her when I played with her. Lucille Watson. As a generous, warm, brilliant, companionable girl. She was beautiful to behold and she had a style all her own and I think it influenced the whole trend of American fashion. Her clothes were always very simple and in those days of high choker collars, her throat was bare and her collars byronic. She wore large, soft, simple hats. Her only jewelry in those days consisted of a superb necklace of large opal beads given her by one of the ladies of the Vanderbilt family. She was the toast of society, but she seemed to like her actor friends best, and every night when we traveled on the road, she gave little supper parties for us. I remember she was partial to parsley, <laughs> and she used to eat the garnishing off every plate. I saw all those wonderful plays of hers, and I was in several of them. And from her, I learned an important lesson in acting. 
When thousands came knighted with thrill by her magnetic voice, I was watching something else, the way she listened to the speeches of her fellow players. And I thank her now for any knowledge I have of what is perhaps the highest art of an actor, the art of beautiful listening. The first time I saw you, Ethel, was in London in 1906. Billy Burke. Isn't it curious how much more accurate a woman's memory for date gets to be as she grows older? You were crossing the lobby of the Carlton on your way to some ducal dinner party. You were wearing a wonderfully simple black diaphanous chiffon dress. And from the very way you walked, I knew that beautiful upturned face must be the lost face of the winged victory. In the following year, Mr. Froman brought me to New York to be the leading lady with your Uncle John Drew. There was a difficulty, however... John Drew felt Billy an undignified name for his leading lady. Perhaps he thought I should expand it to Wilhelmina. Well, I didn't want to, but I had no idea how to win my point. Mr. Froman had asked you to take me to our first rehearsal, to break the ice, and you did. And by your magic, I remained Billy. One thing I'd like to thank you again for, it was just before my baby was born, and you sent me those 24 beautiful, solid gold... Diaper pin. I've always cherished them. I doubt that you ever knew it, but Mr. Ziegfeld actually used two of them for a tie clip for years. Her daughter Ethel was on tour with her once when Miss Barrymore had a chance to show how she felt towards her fellow actors and actresses. At the time, there were tremendous abuses in the theater. You could rehearse an actor for uh, nine weeks and just calmly say, sorry, old dear, we'll replace you. And people were always being stranded on the road in Texas, you know, walking back on the railroad ties. This was sort of a joke, but it was no joke to the actors that had to do it. And finally, when the actors struck, of course, the great stars didn't need to strike. Nobody was going to strand mother in Texas. But when she walked into this sort of uh, great mob of, of actors that were milling around, they were all the smaller actors at this point who were striking and needed this uh, uh, help. And they looked at her and said, we've won. And she said for the first time in her life, she felt like Joan of Arc. <laughs> but it was absolutely true that when the Barrymores went out, that was when the managers Capitulated. And she really thought she'd lost a part. This wasn't as easy because um, she was supposed to go into rehearsal with De Classe. And uh, Alf Heyman, who had been her manager for years, was so mad at her because she wouldn't go into rehearsal that he said, we have engaged Mrs. Patrick Campbell. And she thought she had lost the greatest part of her career. So this wasn't an empty gesture. As a very old, old lady, 101 years old, in fact, the matriarch grandmother in the White Oaks gave Miss Barrymore an opportunity to use still a different voice and style from those we've heard. This is a scene of the grandmother with Finch. I may seem to be asleep, but I'm wide awake. I know, Grant. But it's not good for you to lose so much sleep. You'll be tired in the morning. If I'm tired, I'll stop in bed. It's my family that tires me. Fuss, 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 fuss. <laughs> Do you remember the night I pretended to die? How they all came running. I wanted to see what they do. But I mustn't cry wolf. 
They mightn't come when I really want them. Do you know why they fuss, Finch? They fuss because they all want my money. You're not worrying about who I'll leave my money to, are you? No. Ah. You aren't frightened of me, are you? No, Grant. That's good. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Don't be in a hurry to answer it. It's a very serious question. Who shall I leave my money to, eh? Oh, don't ask me that, Grant. That's for you to say. I know that. But suppose you were in my place. Who would you leave it to? Mind you, I won't have my bit of money cut up like a cake. My mind's made up on that. Now then, who's to get it, eh? I can't possibly choose. Don't pretend you haven't thought about it. Which one of them deserves it most? I should say, since you asked me, there's only one person who really deserves to have it. Who's that? Well, Rennie. Rennie? Ah, you say that because he's your favorite. No, no. I was putting myself in your place, as you told me to. Your grandfather left him Jalna. Why doesn't he make it pay? I'll tell you why. Because he hasn't your grandfather's guts. They none of them have your grandfather's guts. No guts, no guts, no guts. Why did you choose Ren? You'll be annoyed with me. Out with it? Well... Rennie's always hard up. He's brought up the lot of us. He's had Uncle Nick and Uncle Ernie living with him for years. And you've always made your home with him. It was my home before it was his. Oh, he loves having you. But just the same, he's at his wit's end for money sometimes. You can speak your mind plainly when you want to, but I like it. Yes, I like it very much. I wonder what you'd do with the money if I were to leave it to you. I, I shouldn't know what to do with it. Don't say that. Of course you'd know what to do with it. Wouldn't you? It's stupendous. I'd scarcely know where to begin. Good Lord. You'd know what to do with it, eh? Yes. I'd send the uncles on a pleasure trip to England. Pheasant and Piers want a new car. And Rennie... Oh, well, of course, Rennie. You'd want nothing for yourself? Oh, yes. I'd want everything for myself. Everything? What do you mean, everything? I'm not free. I can't do what I want to do. I must always do what I'm told. I want to learn. To learn to bring out all the music that I feel is in me. I can't get it out through my fingers, but it's in my head. I want to study abroad. I want to practice until I can satisfy something that never has been satisfied. Let me hear you play. Good Lord, they'll hear me. Suppose they do. If it wakes them up, it'll do them good. Oh, Grant, if you only knew how I long to play. But I never get a chance. They won't let me. They sit on me and laugh at me, Rennie and the rest of them, because I can't train a dog and ride a horse. But I can do something that they can't. I can do it well, too. I know I can. Only not here. If I could only get away from them, just for a little, it needn't be for long. If I could only 
find myself. I think I do. I know I do something that was great. I suppose you think that's soft. No. Where were you off to just now? Do you often prowl about at night? Sometimes. What do you do? You won't tell. Even a woman can learn to hold her tongue when she's a hundred. <laughs> I go to the church and play on the organ. You play on the organ at night in an empty church? Yes. Well, church is all right when the parson and the people are out of it. Nothing flippity-jibbit about a church then. But aren't you afraid alone there with all the dead people outside? I'm not afraid of the dead. They don't interfere with your music, eh? You're a queer boy, but I like you. Yes. I like you very much. Now, I want you to do something for me. Every night when you come from the church, I want you to stop and have it with me. Night's very long. My best sleep is over by midnight, only catnap after that. And I like you to play for me. But, Grandad... Oh, we can be something quiet. They won't hear. And it'll please me. I'm tired now. I think I'll go back to my bed. Play for me. Oh, but, Gran, you ought to sleep. I'd sleep better if you play for me. Go along. And don't forget tomorrow when you come from the church. Something for me to look forward to. It's grand to have something to look forward to. In public life, too, all through this century, men and women who value the best things we have in our national culture have admired Ethel Barrymore. My own mother-in-law has told me that Ethel Barrymore, as a young American actress in London, had no wealth to display, and so, instead of the diamond tiaras that the other women wore in those days, she used to wear flowers or leaves as a hair ornament, a kind of wreath. The story goes that after Ethel had appeared at a few of these great parties, simply dressed and with a wreath on her hair, all the fashionable London ladies began to send their tiaras and their crowns to the bank, and then they all began to wear flowers and leaves instead. Even at 20, Miss Barrymore had this strange power, even unconsciously, the power to impose her personality and make it rule. With the passage of the years, she's never lost this power. Ethel has no age. Herbert Bayard Swope. She is an unchanging and unchangeable spirit. There is in her today the same fire, the same charm, the same alertness, and the same ability to make those she meets glow and thrill at seeing her that she had when I first became her willing subject. And that was one day when I, as a young reporter, saw her for the first time. She was with Richard Harding Davis and his brother Charles Melmont Davis in front of the old Webernfield Music Hall. 
she then had that utterly irresistible attraction. She has it today. She will always have it. I have remembered Miss Barrymore. Eleanor Roosevelt. With pleasure in many stage performances. And I've also remembered her with admiration and off the stage. The last time was when she came once to the White House to talk to me about a project she had. She was going to improve the speaking ability of our members of Congress. It was a very laudable project, I think. I don't know whether she ever actually carried it out or not. But she had all the charm and all the beauty that I had admired for many years that I'm sure she has that same charm and that same beauty today and will always have it. When President Roosevelt died, as millions remember, Miss Barrymore's tribute to him was a reading of the 23rd Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Her beautiful and deeply moving voice is one we shall never forget. We all hope that it will be with us for many long years to come. One of our national blessings in the future as it has been in the past. been listening to Meet Ethel Barrymore, a transcribed presentation of her life in the words of her admirers. This is Vincent Sheehan. The program was produced for NBC News by Bill Weinstein. Sutton for the NBC Travel Bureau today over most NBC radio stations. Thank you for joining us and enjoying our digitally remastered old-time radio shows from SolvedMystery.com. Please remember to leave us a review and to follow us for frequent releases.